face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss global issues and how we can solve local, national, and international challenges. My name is Evan Papp and I graduated from the School of Public Policy class of 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which creates content on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. And I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Stacy Costco, who's an associate research professor and associate director in the Center for International Development and Conflict Management in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. She holds a PhD in public policy and development studies from the University of Maryland, where she studied development ethics under mentorship of David A. Crocker. Her research focuses on development ethics, human rights, and marginalized populations. Stacy, long time. I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. How are you doing? Yeah, I haven't seen you in so long. It's wonderful to see you again. I'm great. Thanks. So to begin, could you talk about a bit about your background and how you first got interested in international development ethics and human rights? Yeah, so you know, my, my background is is one of many different careers and majors and programs of study. Uh, and I never really expected to end up here um, as an academic or somebody doing um, you know, international development, but I've always been passionate about social justice. And so my my sort of studies in undergrad and then going on to my, my master's degree really focused on social justice. And when I graduated from my master's, um, which was in conflict management and, and foreign service, I, I started out at the advocacy project doing human rights work. Um, and there was a good measure of development and conflict work. And, um, you know, I, I kept coming up in, in sort of our, I was the deputy director of the organization and we kept coming up against these sort of big policy issues and, and difficult operations questions that often had underlying some kind of big kind of moral dilemma or uh, ways in which different human rights uh, seem to contradict each other where you sometimes have to, it seems, make trade-offs. And I always sort of felt like, wow, there must be somebody out there who's given a lot of thought to this and sort of it has been able to come up with frameworks and ways of thinking about these and answering these dilemmas in a, in a way that we can justify. But I don't have the bandwidth to do that because I'm saddled with, you know, all this email and, just, you know, ordinary operations at a small NGO. And so ultimately, I decided to go back and get a PhD. And I had anticipated actually going back into the practice community and, you know, back into human rights practice. Um, but what I discovered uh, when I was doing my PhD with Dave Crocker, also of University of Maryland fame, um, you know, I discovered that like, wow, there's this whole field called development ethics that I was completely unaware existed, um, as I think most practitioners are. And the whole kind of purpose of the field is really to give us like a, a sort of moral and ethical vocabulary and set of frameworks and tools for making these difficult decisions and justifying them, um, you know, ethically speaking. Um, and so, you know, once I kind of discovered that field, I realized like, okay, this is something I really, really want to focus on. And human rights is a big part of that. It's not that they're separate things. Um, and so, you know, I, I ultimately, by the time I finished my PhD at the School of Public Policy with, with Dave Crocker, realized, 
actually, I kind of want to keep thinking about this. And I think that my value added is in uh, more in helping students and you know future human rights advocates and, and practitioners to think through these difficult challenges and to have that moral moral vocabulary and to have these frameworks at hand. And so I decided to stick around and I'm still here. <laughs> so what, what was your dissertation on? My dissertation was on, um, gosh, I don't, even, I don't even remember the title now, but it was on human rights in marginalized communities uh, and uh, with a specific focus on education. So I was really interested in the ways in which um, education policy can either support or undermine human rights, particularly for marginalized groups and particularly for groups that are marginalized because of some cultural distinction vis-a-vis -vis the, the majority population. And so um, the two, I, I did three main case studies in my dissertation. Two of them were on uh, Roma, um, Romani Gypsy, Roma communities in, in Europe, in Central and Eastern Europe. And one of them was um, on the Sami, um, the indigenous reindeer herders in Scandinavia, Northern Russia. And I just, I really, I, I was interested in like, okay, how can we make education policy that is gonna support the needs of all students, not just majority students, and in a way that we can justify from a human rights perspective. Uh, I mean, the, the big concepts into the actual practice and the policy, it, it seems like there's there's just a huge gap there. Um, yes. But yeah, the, the recommendation, and then you bring in the financial and the economic and the politics and everything Absolutely. else. Absolutely. It becomes extremely complicated. Absolutely. Uh, so where, where do you begin though, when you're trying to maybe make a change in public policy? I guess by discussing it, bringing up that there is an issue, is, I presume is like one of the first issues or first yeah. step. Absolutely. I think it, I think where do you begin depends on where you sit or stand. So, you know, as somebody of relative privilege, you know, I have a, a sort of a voice and a platform and a microphone that a lot of other people uh, for whom these issues are really urgent don't have. So, you know, I, I actually like just a couple of days ago, I got an email from somebody, um, a, a representative in Congress who who wants to work on, um, you know, a, a, an agenda that's underpinned by um, secular moral values and reached out to me to say like, hey, can you help us, you know, develop this moral vocabulary and, and the arguments that we need to forward, you know, a sort of ethical um, policymaking uh, and, and, but, you know, from a secular moral perspective. And I was like, yeah, great, awesome. But, you know, how many people who actually suffer the kinds of, of abuses and marginalization that, that, you know, I focused on in my dissertation, how many of those kind of people get those emails? Like none, right? Very few. So, you know, the question is, you know, if, if you stand in a place of privilege um, and you stand in a place where you do have a kind of microphone, um, then you have a moral obligation to use it and you can start with your skill set. If your skill set is, as you and I have, have talked about before, filmmaking, make a film. If your skill set is blogging, write a really compelling blog and make sure social media picks it up. Um, but if you if you don't stand in a place of, of, of privilege and visibility, then you have different a different set of options. Um, and you know it there are lots of different ways in which public advocates um, aim to get their voices heard. Um, and, that, and that was actually the subject of my Fulbright research when I was uh, I spent a year in the the former Soviet Republic of Moldova. And I was I spent the time interviewing um, minority youth activists, um, not just minority, but marginalized youth activists. So minorities, but also other marginalized groups like um, disabled persons and so on. Um, and, and interviewed them about how they actually 
aim to make social and political change. And it was, a, it, I had so many fascinating conversations and there are so many fascinating tools at people's disposal, even when they are on the margins of society. So a big part of it is getting the agency of the people who are affected some type of capability, which kind of brings me to my next question, since you serve as the executive board of the International Development Ethics Association and mm -hmm. you're a fellow and officer of the Human Development and Capability Association. So mm -hmm. what is the capability approach? It's a great question. Um, there are many capability approaches, capabilities approaches. Um, the one that most people have in mind, I mean, there are many versions of it, I should say. It all kind of has the same core. Um, founded, you know, it's sort of and articulated originally by Amartya Sen and then Martha Nussbaum and also with Ulhak um, and Crocker and, 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 and others. But at its core, the capability approach is a way of thinking about development. You know, Sen famously named one of his books, Development is Freedom, thinking about capabilities as freedoms, but substantive freedoms. So the idea that the capability approach wants to forward is that, or one of many ideas, is that all of us in society ought to have real opportunities to be and do what we value and have reason to value. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we are obligated to take up those opportunities, but we ought to have real opportunities. And there's two pieces to that that, that make the capability approach important and distinct. So one of them is that um, real opportunity means it can't just be de jure, it can't just be on paper. So like saying, okay, um, you know, these minority youth have the right to go to school great, but if they attempt to actually enroll in school and they're blocked by the local authorities, they're told that while well, the classrooms are all full or if they try to attend, um, they get eggs thrown at them or they're berated and abused, they don't have a real substantive opportunity to get an education, right? Just because it's on paper doesn't mean that it's real. Or if they're too poor to go to school because they don't have shoes or appropriate clothing, or they're too hungry to learn, they don't have the real opportunity for education. So what the capability approach tells us is that we need to look at all the pieces that go into making the opportunity to be educated real and substantive and an actual opportunity for people, not just an opportunity on paper. So that's one piece. Then the other piece is the bit about, um, you know, nobody is required to take these up, right? So, you know, just because um, it's important for all of us to have the opportunity to be well-nourished doesn't mean that that we are forced to be so at all times. And, and the, the great example of that that um, Sen and others give is that um, there's a real difference that we need to articulate between somebody who is starving because they do not have the resources to actually be well-nourished and on the other hand, somebody who fasts for religious reasons or who is on a hunger strike in jail, right? There's a choice there. That person may have the opportunity to be well nourished, but they're choosing not to be. And it's unacceptable to put a feeding tube down their throat, right? Um, but the person who doesn't have the opportunity, uh, that's the person we need to focus on. And, and then and folks can choose which of their, the things in sort of their opportunity set, their capability set, they wanna pursue based on what they value. So oftentimes the material realities is uh, sometimes the foundation that a lot of people will be looking at when mm -hmm. they're looking at capability approach. Mm -hmm. The concept of freedom is it's much greater circle than just the material approach. It, it brings in yeah. so many other factors. How do you respond when someone says, 
we just need to focus on the material aspects of trying to improve someone's freedom. Right, so this is sort of like a, a basic needs approach to development and human rights. Um, I, I respond by saying that, that meeting our basic needs and just our basic material or physical needs does not make for a truly human life. It's not what flourishing is and every human being deserves the opportunity to flourish in the way that, that, that they choose, you know, consistent with not harming others. Um, but, you know, the, the, the ability to, and so this is where Martha Nussbaum's sort of list of basic capabilities kind of comes into play. The ability to love who we choose to love, the ability to affiliate with those we choose to affiliate with, to make human connections, to be creative, play, um, the ability to rest. These are things that, that are, are vital for humans and also non-human animals actually, although we tend to think of it as a human thing, it's not. Um, these, these go far, far beyond just sort of the very basic physical needs. You know, what makes life worth living is not the fact of staying alive. It's the fact of, of all of these other wonderful things that we experience in our heads and in our hearts and in our souls. That's what makes life worth living. And when we say that all that really matters is, is that our basic needs are fulfilled, we're basically denying people the right to, to have any kind of a life beyond physical living. Um, and that's something a lot of people would, would feel is not worth living. Um, we can do a lot better than saying that, you know, we're going to meet basic needs or do no harm. We should be, we should be striving for, for human flourishing and human dignity. And there's no reason why we should fall short of that from the human rights approach or development approach or, or, or public policy approach. Beautifully said. It uh, goes against, you know, how do we commodify this beauty? How do right. we commodify this justice? Can't we sell this? It's <laughs> creative endeavors, you know, how do we make money on it? So it, right. it, um, it really changes the entire question of, of what, what the whole purpose is for the meaning, I guess. Of, of Absolutely. Being people. able to buy more stuff is not what makes us truly human or happy. And we know that from public policy and we know that even from quantitative studies. So I am always in awe of people who've written and published books and you wrote a book, Agency in Democracy and Development Ethics. Uh, talk a little bit about the process of it coming to fruition and what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I, so I have it on, on my desk, not because I thought you were gonna ask me that question, but uh, you'll appreciate the, the cover art, Evan. You recognize that? Yes, the uh, dyes in uh, Morocco. That's right. The, the, I the, note to the audience, we the market a winter abroad trip uh, to Morocco and saw a bunch of beautiful cities and mm -hmm. uh, part of the University of Maryland. That's right. Yeah. And it was started by, um, by Dave Crocker uh, at the School of Public Policy. Uh, yeah. So, you know, Evan and I were there together when I took that picture. Um, the, the, the book has its origins in um, my work with Dave Crocker. So Laurie Kelleher, who's my, my co-editor in, in the book, was also a student of Dave Crocker's. Um, she was a philosophy student, but he was on her, her panel. In fact, we had three of the same five committee members. And um, when, so Dave Crocker founded in, in the 80s, the, um, the, in 1984, the International Development Ethics Association. And when we had the 30th anniversary, um, 
you know, we, we started talking about, so we had a, a, a big conference, an anniversary conference in Costa Rica, which is where it was originally founded, um, which is why we pronounce it IDEA and not IDEA. Um, and we started talking about like, how can we honor the, the, the legacy of Dave, who is coming up on his retirement from the School of Public Policy, and then also um, the work that IDEA has, has generated over, over many years and many scholars. And um, Laurie and I said, you know, Dave really needs a feshrift, a, a, a celebration work of, of his life's achievements, because he has done so much. I mean, he's probably the most important living development ethicist in the world right now. And um, so, you know, that sort of was the birth of the idea. And we started reaching out to people who are, you know, longtime collaborators of his, former students of his, um, other um, sort of giants in the field. And we were delighted, but not surprised uh, at how many really amazing scholars were like, yes, I will write an essay um, to celebrate Dave Crocker's work. Um, and so the, 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 the essays in the book, um, and, and, and Laurie and each have one in there as well of our own, they're not just, they're not about Crocker. Um, they're, they're inspired by or in some, somehow engage the issue areas that he has done so much to forward, especially the, the agency aspects of, of international development, development ethics, and democracy, democratization, and public deliberation. And so, um, you know, folks wrote these essays, and then we we insisted that that uh, the Dr. Crocker take up the opportunity to respond to them in the end. And of course, he he came back to us with a seventy-page um, chapter. We're like, okay. The editor's not going to like this. <laughs> Can we make it two chapters to it now? So he has two conclusion chapters, um, and uh, they're outstanding. Uh, and and he, he in fact makes some some real pivots from some of his previous work in this book, and sort of says, actually, you know, I'm coming around on on, on certain issues, including some things that that Stacy and Laurie have been you know jabbing me about for a, a bunch of years. Um, and we're really, we're just really pleased with it. And and the people who who contributed were so generous and did really amazing work. Um, I, I would love for people to take a look at it. It should be coming out in hard copy, I mean, in, in paperback soon. Um, at the, in, in the meantime, it's a bit on the expensive side because it's a, a hard copy from an academic press. But um, but yeah, but I can always share chapters, uh, you know, as as asked. Awesome. And I also agree. David Crocker is just a very great person and he's very open to dialogue and uh, he's changed a lot of lives, I think, by doing some of the, the winter broad trips uh, that I know you were also very much a part of in administering logistics and speaking mm -hmm. French to a lot of people. <laughs> yes, translating over a, quite, a, yes. I, I, I have some clear memories of a lot of adrenaline with some very talkative Moroccans, yeah. So one of your newest projects uh, you aim to create an online open access development project design toolkit. Mm -hmm. what is that? So this sort of, it comes from several different places um, and work that I've done teaching and also practicing uh, international development. But the idea is that um, there are all of these tools out there um, that those of us who are responsible for designing development projects, development interventions, tools that, that we have at our disposal to help us design better. Um, 
more effective, more efficient, um, you know, with, with better monitoring and evaluation, um, you know, better problem analysis, better stakeholder analysis. We have, we have a set of tools. Um, and, and oftentimes these are put together in um, uh, project development manuals, um, internal documents that organizations and, and agencies use for their staff to help, to help professionalize the work that they do. So the American Red Cross has one that I use in my class. I helped write one for the Porticus Family Foundation. Um, UNDP has one. There's a lot of them. Um, but it, the, you know, the work that I've done with, with practitioners around the world and, and the work that I, I've, I've done with my students with them has made me realize that um, a, a lot of a lot of folks who are doing really important community-based development work are don't have access to these tools or are unaware that these manuals exist, and so that was sort of one of the insights that there's there's a need to give people sort of free open access opportunity to to discover and use these tools to help them design better projects that are going to be um, you know better candidates for the funding that they need for their communities the other insight is that even the toolkits that we have here in the US and and you know the um, you know western europe and elsewhere that we have these manuals at our disposal there's nothing about ethics in them there's no development ethics has no place in there, and you know there's certain insights in there that of course we can say you know are consistent with a development ethics mindset, um, stakeholder analysis that focuses on the marginalized, for example. But um, there the 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 tools also miss a lot of opportunity to bring development ethics in, not just kind of at the end stage. We're like, hey, um, are are we like screwing anybody over here? You know, are like should we check on, I don't know, should we do a gender analysis at the end or something? Um, rather, it can be built in at every stage of the design process. And so what I aim to do with this toolkit is to create a set of, um, you know, open access tools uh, that, that can be accessed anywhere in the world where somebody has an internet connection. And ultimately, I hope it'll be something that people can download with just a phone um, that, that will allow them not only to create sort of more um, you know, effective and efficient programs, but to do so with, with the insights and imperatives of development ethics right at the core of each stage of the design process. So that's the goal. Whether we can accomplish that I have no idea. Um, we're working on it. We're uh, a year uh, and a half in, um, and we—I mean, I, I have a Fire Stream, which is a um, Fire is the first year innovation and research experience program at the University of Maryland. So I have forty undergrads and uh, an assistant professor who are are working on this, uh, which is really exciting, and it's fun to be able to share it with them and sort of their discoveries as well. So that's my one of my current projects. So to go off a little bit on a tangent, you know, yeah. I spent 10 years in international development and yes. so many times when these projects are being designed, they oftentimes don't even consider the monitoring evaluation at it until the very end, which is right. absurd to try to measure your actual impact. But there's another really pervasive dynamic of power within these organizations where the majority of the work is being done by the people in the country, by the host country nationals. Mm -hmm. And you go to an embassy or a U.S. agency for international development office, and it's going to mm -hmm. be percent local staff. Right. So, yeah. Very limited um, actual control, like um, power in designing a lot of these, these mechanisms. And then at mm -hmm. the same time, the people who are ultimately supposed to benefit from it at the very end point of the communities, 
they oftentimes have no say in it. And they should, in some ways, I almost want a Yelp for the communities targeted by these projects to rate them afterwards to really show that maybe we should be thinking the design process a little bit, little bit more holistically um, because there, there are so many different projects that are needed, but are just really poorly thought through. So I, I really appreciate your work on this. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I, I agree fully. I mean, a, a more holistic and integrated and horizontal process is, is really important. And, you know, one of the things, one of the insights that I think is, is, is really important from uh, Dennis Goulet's work, uh, he's sort of the, the, the father of, of development ethics and uh, a big inspiration for Crocker who's continued his work. One of his big insights is that you know the point at which the the, the non-elite we can call them the beneficiaries whatever he calls them the non-elite the point at which they enter the process um, is a really important factor and are determining whether or not um, this is a, a a good or a high quality process and so you know he asks like all right are people sort of are the beneficiaries or the non-elite entering in kind of only at the very end to say like you know, yeah, that worked for me or it didn't. Are they entering in at some point when the, you know, the, the project is already designed and they get the opportunity to sort of say, I'm on board or I'm not on board? Or are they involved right from the beginning, even at the problem identification stage? Like, what do you see in your community that seems important to you? What would you like to see changed? You know, what is alarming? Um, so, you know, the, 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 the sooner in the process that we in, involve people in the communities that we intend to impact, whether they're abroad or, you know, right here in our own backyard, um, sort of very often, the, the, the better the process will be. Absolutely. So I want to shift a little bit as we mm -hmm. talk about your work as a professor. How, how has it been teaching during the pandemic? I'm sure it's been a very challenging year. Oof. Yes. I mean, you know. I also have homeschooling children, so that that adds an extra dimension to it. Um, it's hard. Um, I I think I was more prepared than some because I, for quite a while now, have been teaching global classroom courses, um, which are courses that um, where I I bring my my class together with another class from another university. I've done it with Tel Aviv and several times now with Leiden University. Um, and a professor there, and we teach, we co-teach all of our students together synchronously online all semester. And so I think because I'd had that experience of, of, you know, yes, I had my own students in the classroom in that moment, but I also had half of my students, you know, looking at me through a screen. Um, I think that helped me to be more prepared with the technology and also with some of the, the ways, um, the do's and don'ts of trying to engage people in an online environment. Um, with that said, it still bites, if I can say that in this, in this podcast, um, you know, it, it's the human connection that I really appreciate in my teaching, and that I think helps us to focus on what one another are, are actually saying and to hear each other. Um, it's much harder to achieve that through a screen. Um, so my students have been awesome. They've adapted beautifully, they're engaged, but it's not quite the same for any of us. And we're, we also all just have Zoom fatigue, like it's exhausting. Um, we get tired of looking at screens. Um, you know, our, our, our fitness bands are yelling at us to get out of the chair, like just, you know, walk down the hallway, anything. Um, and and that's, 
that's really, really challenging. And the students too, I mean, I can't imagine what their experience being other than anything other than just being challenging and negative and being isolated in the dorms, you can't go outside or you can't interact with right. a little cohort. Um, That's really hard. I'm sure it's really tough. Well, so this actually goes right back to what we were saying earlier about what makes life worth living, right? Human connection is part of that and being able to connect with the humans we want to connect with without being stopped, whether it's by a pandemic or by hostile members of our community or some religious imperative or a government or anything else, like being able to affiliate and interact and have meaningful relationships with other human beings. We are, we are biologically evolved to be social animals. And, and to make those connections, that's what makes us survive. We literally cannot survive. I mean, the neurology even of human connection is fascinating. And so when you shut that down, that just generates so much stress, even though students might've said, and professors um, pre-pandemic, like, I just wanna sit around in my bed in my pajamas and like, you know, go to class on Zoom. That was fun for a couple of weeks. And, you know, now we're all, you know, we're all pretty well aware of how much we miss that connection. So I also want to talk a little bit about labor relations and higher Great. education and the fact that right now, at least in primary and secondary school, yeah. we're having this huge argument that teachers and teacher unions are the enemy of students, even though they're the ones who care more than anyone else spending their time outside of work spending their own money on materials. They wanna be yeah. in the classroom more than anyone because they understand the, the power of that in-person classroom teaching and being over Zoom is actually much more work in a lot of ways. Right. So the spotlight on higher education hasn't been as, um, hasn't been shared quite as much, but there is a growing concern about the unequal labor relations between tenured professors and the rest of the teaching staff. So what has your experience been and what are some ways that we could ensure that people going into teaching in higher education are treated and compensated equitably? And that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge issue that- How long do we have? <laughs> I thought you were gonna ask me about, uh, about you know, teachers at the primary and secondary level because they're working their butts off um, and they're underpaid for people who are meant to be creating the, the, you know, the, the citizens of the future. Um, yeah, so I, what you're really getting at is the distinction between three classes, and they really are classes at the university level, uh, of, of um, um, teachers and, and, and faculty and staff. So there's tenured, tenured and tenure line professors. There's um, professional track faculty. So they're still in the faculty category, but they're professional track. And then there's staff who function often as faculty members, but in, in the you know, HR side, they're classified as staff. Um, and the, the PTK faculty and also very significantly teaching staff are, are widely seen, not by everybody, but by the institution and by many members of the institution as not being quite equal to tenure line faculty. And this is a problem, not just at UMD, but throughout higher ed, everywhere in the country. Um, it is true that the tenure system is, is under fire and that's scary for a bunch of reasons. Um, and I get that. Um, and, and there are a bunch of reasons why it's under fire. There's a business imperative there that I, I won't get into. But the, the, the universities treat non-tenure line faculty um, as somehow other, 
um, even when we have identical job descriptions. And so uh, our salaries are lower. Um, sometimes our benefits are fewer. Um, I had to fight for, for parental leave to be in my contract when I got my first contract at UMD because um, they were like, well, you don't really need. And I was like, no, yeah, I, yeah, I do. And I want that in my contract. <laughs> um, and of course they gave it to me, but I, like, I shouldn't have had to, to fight for that. But if you, if you go, for example, to a faculty ombuds person um, and say like, hey, I'm, I'm, my salary is way lower than, than others in my department, for example, um, they might say, they do say, well, you know, you are, are not a, um, a, a tenure line professor. So you can't really argue that you're the same. And if you're not the same, you can't argue that you're underpaid or that you're being discriminated against. And that's, that's troubling. And there are a lot of people who get very frustrated by that. Um, with that said, my department is really on a mission now to, to, to erase those differences. Um, they're, they're really being great and kind of going out of their way. Our new chair is going out of his way to, to really address some of those inequities. Um, and and I'm, I'm very happy and grateful for that. It's not happening everywhere on campus though. Um, and a lot of people who are tenure, uh, who are non-tenure line faculty and, and you know, PTK and, 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 and teaching staff get really frustrated by the sort of, you know, the, the, the class system. Um, and, and that's difficult. And as long as that persists, to, to answer your question more directly, uh, then recruiting and hiring and keeping um, those faculty members is, is gonna continue to be hard. Um, now, with that said, there, you know, there are very few tenure line positions anywhere in the country. Um, at UMD, for example, three quarters of all undergraduate courses are taught by PTK faculty and teaching staff, not by tenure line professors. Um, there's just so many more of us than, than, than there are of others. Um, so often we don't have anywhere else to go, um, but it's still hard. And some people who do have alternatives might bounce and those people can be really valuable. Um, PTK faculty tend to be in the most high touch positions, meaning that the most direct interaction with students um, in the most kind of intensive environments and to the extent to which Maryland cares about teaching its students, uh, including its undergrads, which it does, um, that should be something they should address. So it's it's working on it. There's faculty affairs has a position that's dedicated to to you know addressing some of these issues. But you know universities are quite literally medieval institutions, and they have changed very little since their establishment um, in medieval Europe. And so fighting that that system is hard. It's really hard. It's very entrenched, and a lot of people. Um, get frightened by those changes um, because they wonder, well, what happens to me? What happens next? So I, I think the UMD is taking a lot of the right steps, but um, yeah, it's gonna be a long slog. And just one follow-up question. Mm -hmm. Is there any organizing efforts amongst the 75% that hold the power to withhold their labor? <laughs> um, right, so there are, um, initiatives on campus for PTK faculty to come together. There's a, a, um, a, a conference or a colloquium that happens once a year, um, which is meant to be an opportunity for, for PTK faculty to share their work, both research and teaching, um, and to sort of, it's a showcase of, you know, the contributions of PTK faculty on campus. Um, it, it also often ends up being a, sort of a mutual venting session. It's like group therapy. <laughs> that happened to you too? Oh my God, what did you do? Um, but there is no sort of separate union 
um, there's no union at all that I'm aware of actually, um, for, for teaching staff and PTK faculty. So yeah, that, that, organizing, that organizing aspect is important. Um, I think a, a lot of us, and this is true, I think of people in any kind of unionizing situation, um, there's a lot of concern that like, well, if I withhold my labor, um, where do I go next? Because one of the problems is that, and, and again, this is common in a lot of labor situations, and this is why the tenure system is very different, but um, tenure line faculty can't be fired unless they essentially abuse somebody. Um, but our, our contracts are at the pleasure of the department. They can be terminated without cause at any time. Um, and it, there are so many PhDs being minted every day um, that there will always, always be somebody else ready to step into that vacancy. Um, because you know, PhD programs are minting multiple, multiple, like many folds more PhDs than there will ever be tenure line positions for in academia. So um, that, that fear is real. And I know that's something that plagues um, unionizing, you know, always and strikes uh, and, and whatnot, but um, yeah, it's true for us too. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I'm sure yeah. it's a, a big struggle and hopefully things will change as we understand the importance of higher education, it, you know, in the most hard nose to be competitive in the global world type thing, but also to build the capability of, of the adult citizens of this country. And to Absolutely. That it's not just this for profit, but it's actually there's something else there that's important. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, no, with, without a doubt. And I also recognize that, you know, even though I'm, my position is sort of within an inequitable system, I still occupy a position of real privilege. Um, and I do love my job. I genuinely do. Um, so, you know, that, that fight is there, but let's, let's put our efforts on the people who are in much more vulnerable positions as me is a good place to start. So in closing, looking into the future of development ethics and human rights, where do you see opportunity and hope? Mm. everywhere. Um, humanity is getting better, even if it's hard to see. And, uh, you know, as, as Martin Luther King said, the, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And um, if we take a long view, it really, really, really is changing for the better. Um, we often focus in the West, especially in, on um, the sort of civil and political rights. Um, you know, liberties as we call them here in the US. And so we can look around and say, well, these are under fire in lots of places. You know, there's so much backsliding everywhere on civil and political rights. Um, and, and that's true to a certain extent, uh, but we're, we don't focus enough on what's changing with economic, social and cultural rights. And we have been making enormous strides. I mean, we have absolute poverty within the 10 years of the Millennium Development Goals. Um, that's, I mean, that's, an extraordinary feat. Um, you know, we, we've slashed uh, infant mortality in the world in, in just the course of, of you know, of not even a full course of, of, you know, primary education. That's extraordinary. And, but, you know, when we think of human rights, we're often not thinking about the economic and social rights that are, are really part and parcel of what makes our lives go well. Not to say that civil and political rights don't also help make our lives go well, um, but I, we often focus only kind of on one class of human rights. And if we take the, the wide angle lens, we can see that the world is getting better. And there are places where it's getting worse and there always will be, but on a whole, we're getting better. Um, development ethics as a field, um, 
you know, outside of academia and even within academia, a lot of people don't know that it exists, but a lot of people are doing the work anyway. And increasingly, a lot of people are recognizing like, hang on, we need a, a moral vocabulary that's explicit in our work. And I think that the past year, um, in part from Black Lives Matter and the election craziness and you know the pandemic has really refocused a lot of attention on you know, issues of, of equity, for example, diversity, inclusion, sort of, you know, what is it that, that we can do to actually make sure that we're putting our, our, our ethics and our, our values at the center of what we do. And everywhere I look, people and organizations and, and companies are refocusing on that. And I think that's really, really helpful. Um, Dr. Chloe Schwenke, who's also um, a graduate of the School of Public Policy and one of David Crocker's former students as well, uh, launched this past spring um, with help from Laurie Callaher and I and Anna Malavisi, the, the Center for Values in International Development, um, which is a, an, a new organization meant to serve this purpose. And, you know, everywhere we go and talk to people, uh, you know, all the these, you know, beltway bandits are just like, yes, yes, we need a more vocabulary. Yes, we need to, we need to refocus on this. Um, and that's exciting. And so I think that that a lot of the things that made 2020 such a difficult year are also helping to create a future in which we recognize that we've we haven't had our attention always in the right place so that makes me hopeful <laughs>